Hey folks, Sam Cedar here. You're listening to a free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. If you want the total show without commercials, head over to rofpodcast.com and become a member of this program. Look, this is our main source of revenue for Ring of Fire radio. And you can help keep us on the air by signing up for a Ring of Fire podcast membership. For far less than a cup of coffee a week, you can support this program and get our full show. Head over to rofpodcast.com right now and sign up. Much appreciated. Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on Ring of Fire Radio, let America vote President Jason Kander on fighting voter suppression tactics pushed by President Trump's Commission on Election Integrity. Dave Doniger from the Natural Resources Defense Council will join us to discuss the NRDC's lawsuit against the Trump administration for violating the Clean Air Act. Carl Frisch from Allied Progress will explain how a provision in the Financial Choice Act would obliterate any effort to rein in the predatory payday lending industry. Finally, Heather Digby-Parton from Salon will be here to help me recap the craziest and biggest stories of this past week. If you aren't a member of our podcast, go to rofpodcast.com to sign up. There you'll have the option of signing up for a free hour of our show or becoming a member and getting the full three-hour program without commercials, plus bonus content you won't hear anywhere else. Become a member today, and you'll receive a copy of Mike Papantonio's Law and Disorder. That's right. If you sign up today and support this radio show, you'll get a free hardcover version of Law and Disorder. Plus, you'll get our full program without commercials. Go to rofpodcast.com and sign up. That's rofpodcast.com. Joining me now to help recap this week's biggest stories, Heather Parton from Salon, or as you may know her from her blog, Hullabaloo Digby. So, Heather, uh, <laughs> quite a week of uh, revelations, of testimony, of, of revelations of the inner workings of the White House or the inner dysfunction of the White House. It's we could really stab at anything and uh, talk about the most important story of the week. But I guess we should start with the testimony by James Comey, the former FBI chief who testified in front of the Intelligence Committee this week. He had basically laid out his testimony or at least the uh, prepared remarks the day before, ostensibly, I guess, maybe to give um some uh, some heads up to, to questioners, maybe I, I don't know. I mean, we you mentioned off air that uh, Donald Trump has said that uh, James Comey is a showboat. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, but he's also a, a very meticulous cover of one's uh, behind. It seems where he started to and and he documents. He lays this all out in 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 his um, his prepared uh, testimony that. 
He started documenting after his first meeting with Donald Trump. He was so disturbed that first meeting that he went into a car, an FBI car, and started typing on an FBI laptop uh, so that it would be completely accurate. And what struck me, Digby, I mean, just, you know, starting with the, the, the less... He spoke to Barack Obama twice in his entire tenure, once to discuss policing policies and once to say goodbye in 2016. He has talked to Donald Trump, I think he said, nine times in the four months uh, before he was fired, three in person, six on the phone. And the bottom line is, is that people are saying, at the very least, we're watching. We just saw testimony of obstruction. Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) I think, you know, most of the legal experts, I mean, there are a few who are, you know, taking some kind of, you know, contrarian viewpoint, of course. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, people are going, this this would be classic obstruction of justice. There's, you know, when you ask somebody to drop a, you know, essentially to drop an, inve- ask a law enforcement officer to drop an investigation and, you know, you're the boss. The, the big boss, and you say, you know, could you drop it? That's obstruction of justice. And I think, you know, I mean, it's very interesting because Comey is such an, a fantastically interesting character. I mean, there's there's really nobody like him, and Trump really made a mistake in going up against this guy of all bureaucrats because he's not a normal bureaucrat. I mean, he is a dramatic fellow and has been from the very beginning of his career. He put, you know, if, if a reality star wants to go up against a reality star, Comey's the guy. And right. I think Comey's winning on this one. Because what the way that he, that he portrayed this series of events was, you know, extremely dramatic. And, and it portrayed it in a way that gives you a real sense of just how weird it was what Donald Trump was doing. It's just what you just said. He never had these meetings with President Obama when he was FBI director. And the reason is it's completely inappropriate for the FBI director to meet with the president one-on-one and to talk to him one-on-one, particularly if there is some kind of an investigation going on. I mean, it's just not done. And it's not, I mean, I guess there's no law against it. I mean, as, as Trump has said, you know, over and over again. I guess all laws do, do not apply to the king uh, in his in his view, or at least that's how he's interpreted various you know findings by his White House counsel. So you know, this is a very weird thing that happened. That just the conversations alone, the fact that the president wanted to do it. I mean, he had dinner alone with him in the green room, just the two of them with a little table, and there was nobody there. And and Comey describes this in great detail. And, you know, the Navy stewards come in and drop off the food, and then they leave, and he's just alone there in the room. And it's pretty clear that Trump is saying, hey, you know, you want to keep your job, you're going to, you know, you're going to follow the party line here, fella. And, you know, Comey's feeling uncomfortable about it, and he can't, he's refusing to express his loyalty, and that's clearly what Trump wants. I mean, it just goes on and on like this, uh, up to the point where, where, you know, Trump actually has a meeting with him. And in fact, Comey went after the effect and said, it's the first meeting and said to Sessions, Yes. Please don't ever let me be alone in a room with this guy again. I, I mean, mean, first off, I just got, we just got to stop and, and say, I wonder how many people have said that to other people about Donald Trump. Right? I can I mean, guarantee I mean, many women have I mean, said yeah, that. I, for sure. I would imagine there was a lot of women who were like, "You can't leave me alone with him in there." Um, but yeah, he went to Jeff Sessions and made this plea, and I wonder 
It's not quite clear, but I wonder if in the back of his mind, when, when Jeff Sessions just sort of looked at him blankly, if Comey got the idea that, hmm, I can't trust Sessions either. Well, but, it kind of sounded that way to me. I mean, yeah. he didn't say that outright. but And, and of course, I mean, that's logical. Right. Sessions was deep. Not only was he an extreme Trump loyalist, the first senator to endorse him, he's implicated in this Russian stuff, too. I yep. mean, you know, and, and I think Comey probably knew that anybody involved in the transition and the campaign. And, and remember, Sessions wasn't just some guy that was, you know, kind of on the campaign trail rooting for Trump. He was the head of his foreign relations committee. I mean, he's the guy who was kind of putting together Trump's foreign policy, you know, campaign. And that had a lot to, and, you know, and recall that what Trump was doing was very unusual for a Republican. He was being very, very, very soft on Russia. So I think, and it seemed weird that Sessions would do that, too. You know what I mean? I mean, he didn't seem like, he always struck me as a pretty hawkish guy. But for whatever reason, this whole Russian thing was happening throughout the campaign, which is one of the things that's so you know, fascinating about this whole scandal, is that everybody knew that Russians had been implicated in interference with the election, that Trump had this strange soft spot for Vladimir Putin. I mean, this wasn't new. And yet the transition came in and was doing all this these secret meetings. You know, it's like, how dumb do you have to be? Or... You know, I guess you just figure you arrogant. power, you can arrogant. Yeah, yeah. Just, you can do I, I, I mean, want. I think uh, at the end of this, if there is ever an end to it, that is going to be a really good question, whether or not this was, uh, you know, just an, an enormous amount of arrogance or enormous amount of stupidity. And, and, and perhaps it could be both. I mean, just trying to because there's so much information. Of course, you know, we also had the NSA chief. Mike Rogers and the DNI chief, the director of national intelligence, uh, Dan Coates, also testifying the day before Comey, uh, refusing to answer the reports that were uh, earlier reports that um, Donald Trump had asked them to tamp down uh, the investigation. They refused to. And I'll tell you, it got a little bit heated uh, with folks like Senator Angus King in that. But all right, we have a lot more to talk about in terms of the Comey testimony. We have to talk about uh, the the NSA leak that happened this uh, this week that uh, got someone arrested for under espionage charges. Uh, we got to talk about what's happening in the Senate in terms of uh, of, of health care. I mean, there's so much news to talk about, Digby. We got to take a quick break. We'll be uh, right back to talk about more. I'm a trial lawyer. I've spent countless hours pouring through documents that tell the story about the ugliest side of corporate America. Corporate media refuses to talk about these issues. I'm going to paint a clear picture about how disturbing, how corrupt corporate conduct has become in modern America. These are stories that no one else can tell. I'm Mike Papantonio, host of America's Lawyer. Question more. Find out more at ringoffireradio.com. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Heather Digby-Parton from Salon. So, Heather, touching on the, uh, the, the Comey testimony on Thursday, and obviously um, he, 
he released a huge part of the prepared testimony uh, the day before. There was a couple of things that struck out um, uh, at me. In addition to, obviously, what, like you said earlier, uh, Jeffrey Tubin uh, from CNN and The New Yorker said, this is clear obstruction. And, you know, just to be clear, uh, you've got people like uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, going around saying you can't have obstruction if you haven't proved an underlying crime. That is not the case. Uh, that is simply just not the case. You can ask people like Martha Stewart, who spent some time in jail, uh, as to that question. But one thing that struck me, of the many things, frankly, was uh, that Donald Trump was telling the truth, that James Comey did indeed tell him that no one was pers- was uh, personally investigating, or I should say was investigating President Trump personally, in the person. And Donald Trump, according to Comey, had said, we need to get this out there. You need to make this public. And parenthetically, in his written statement anyways, he wrote, I did not tell the president that the FBI and the uh, as to why he didn't do this publicly. I did not tell the president that the FBI and the Department of Justice had been reluctant to make public statements that we did not have an open case on President Trump for a number of reasons. Most importantly, because it would create a duty to correct should that change. In other words, when James Comey is refusing to go public with the lack of an investigation on Donald Trump, uh, the person, it was largely because there was a chance that people felt in the FBI and Department of Justice that could change. And they didn't want to have to go correct the record like they did uh, <laughs> ostensibly with uh, Hillary Clinton in those uh, Anthony Weiner emails. I was really struck by that because, you know, obviously shortly after that, Comey's no longer on the case. But uh, there was clearly a sense within those circles that this could lead directly to the president. Well, I mean, yeah. And the, fa- <laughs> the fact that he was... I mean, look, we knew that Trump, that Comey believed this particular thing, that if you've made a public statement, that you have a duty then to go back and correct it publicly, uh, because that's what he did with Clinton, right? And in fact, it kind of added, lent a little credibility <laughs> to the idea, weirdly, in a weird backhanded fashion, that the reasoning that they gave for firing Comey which was, you know, ridiculous that, you know, he'd handled the Clinton thing badly, that that actually was part of their rationale because they were afraid he was going to do the same thing to Trump that he mm. did to Clinton, uh, which I hadn't actually thought of before. I just thought they were grasping at whatever reasons they could find to, to fire him and also because Jared Kushner had personally assured Trump that, if he did that, the Democrats would be so hamstrung and tongue-tied that they'd go along with it and not say anything, uh, which is really a silly, you know, completely ridiculous political uh, uh, analysis. <laughs> but that's Kushner for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was very, it was very interesting that he did uh, want to leave that door open, which of course any investigator would. I mean, any invest, you know, they would would make no sense for him to just say, well, we know that you, we have no information that you've been personally implicated and we never will find any. I mean, he couldn't right. possibly say that. Um, and uh, there was, there, I mean, there's a myriad of things that um, uh, struck me, but one of the weird ones was um, where Trump said, uh, basically, I've been very loyal to you, very loyal. We had that thing, you know. 
And what was Comey, that? What did he I mean by that? No, I don't know. And Comey did not uh, reply or ask him what he meant by that thing. So Comey didn't even want to know what he was referring to. I mean, that thing could have been that thing with Clinton. Uh, that thing could have been. I, I mean, I don't know what else, what other history they would have had. Um, but it's just, um, wow. I mean, just, uh, very strange. And again, the real key here is that at the very least, there's a lot of evidence of obstruction of justice and, um, and well, and Trump behaving in a thuggish manner. I mean, a lot of this, they're bringing up McCabe, the uh, acting, uh, the, the second in command at the FBI at the time kind of indicating that, you know, hey, I didn't bring up your guy and his problems because he had some issues. His wife had worked for Terry McAuliffe or something, the uh, the, the governor of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, there had been some kind of idea that McCabe was a secret Democrat working on behalf of Clinton or something. And and Trump brings this up in, the, in one of the conversations as kind of like, hey, you know, I kept it quiet about your boy McCabe. I haven't gone after him. You know, just think about that for a minute. I mean, there's these kind of veiled threats through the entire thing. Uh, Very crude and, you know, obviously very uncomfortable for Comey. And then, of course, you know, he ended up firing him. So, you know, he proved that he would carry out his threats if if he felt that he had to. And uh, we also heard reports um, this week that he was mad at uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself um and apparently according to the reporting jeff sessions offered to resign at least um uh, casually the president didn't seem to encourage that um you know one has to wonder at this point we start hearing stories like this how much is it um about people trying to take a step away from donald trump yeah you know, I mean, this is uh, we saw this a couple of weeks ago before the Europe trip where all of a sudden we saw all these stories about Mike Pence, how he didn't know anything anywhere. Uh, but uh, look, we've got to take a break when we come back in the next hour. Digby, I want to talk about uh, more about this, but also about this NSA document that leaked and the espionage charges that were filed against the leaker. We've got to take a quick break. Sam Cedar, Ring of Fire Radio. Digby will be back with me in the next hour. Just ahead, Carl Frisch from Allied Progress on a provision in a GOP-sponsored bill that would help the predatory nature of payday lending companies. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has found that over 19 million U.S. households resort to payday loans. Of that number, almost 70% of borrowers have to take out a second loan to cover the first one. And then 20% end up saddled with 10 or more loans, one after the other. Here to discuss the predatory nature of the payday lending industry, Executive Director of Allied Progress, Carl Frisch. 
So, Carl, let's let's back up a little bit and tell us um, just a little bit about what 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 payday la- uh, loans. What has changed about payday loans over the past, let's say, decade? Well, they have certainly taken on uh, a very aggressive posture in our government. You probably have seen folks listening have seen fights over payday lending in states around the country, certainly in the federal government. In the last three years, the Obama administration was working really hard to try and rein in the worst practices of predatory payday lenders. And for people that aren't familiar, payday loans are extremely high interest rate, small dollar loans that people can take out. And when I say extremely high rate, I don't mean like 35 or 40 percent. I mean 300, 400, 500 percent interest loans. And consequently, these business models for payday loans are built on the notion that they can get somebody trapped in a cycle of debt, where their only way out of pay, you know, out of that payday loan is to pay it off with another payday loan. And the only way out of that one is to pay it off with another payday loan. So they trap these people and they make a fortune off of them. Um, and the person who was in a desperate position and needed the help has a very difficult time escaping that trap and makes their situation so much worse. So they pour a lot of money into politics. The administration, through the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, pursued uh, regulations on payday lenders Carl, to make it easier Carl, let for... Me stop, let me stop you there for one moment. I mean, just to, for, for a moment, let's just explain to us how that happens, because I feel like there's probably people who are listening like, well, I don't understand. I mean, I don't okay. understand how it is that people get into that <laughs> position where they get that far in debt so quickly and so desperately. And, you know, there may even be a couple of people who are like, well, I mean, look, you know, nobody's forcing you to take a loan. Uh, explain to us the dynamic. Well, I, you know, I mean, these rates would make the mob blush. So put yourself in the shoes of somebody. And, you know, payday lenders will tell you that these are for life's emergencies. And they're really not. Most people take out payday loans for everyday expenses. So imagine you are an individual who makes $1,000 per pay period, and virtually every penny of your paycheck goes towards your life's living expenses. And one week you are short, and if you don't pay, you know, if you don't come up with 200 bucks, you're not going to be able to pay your rent that month. Well, uh, you go to a payday lender, and you know they don't check to see if you're going to be able to afford. You know they don't do anything that you would do if you were interested in getting your loan paid off. You know you when you buy a car, you buy a house, you take out a loan from a bank. They check to see does this person have the means to pay this back under the terms of the loan. This is not. And we should say these loan executives, do. these loan officers, as they're called at a bank. Uh, they have right. a fiduciary responsibility, not just to the bank, but they have a responsibility to our society to loan responsibly right. to people who, who don't. And, and let's face it, the vast majority of Americans, I would include myself, do not have the level of financial literacy to make a determination as to what type of loan they can afford to pay off, particularly right. when you start talking about interest rates that are variable. Well, and for a payday loan customer... What ends up happening is these folks typically uh, don't have access to other lines of credit, and the only thing that a payday lender is looking for is somebody who has a checking account and a paycheck that's coming in every two weeks because they assume that because you have a paycheck that pays at least what they're lending you and because you are giving them permission to draw the funds directly from your bank account, that they will get paid off. And they do. But what ends up happening is the person who is paying off that loan 
is immediately back where they were before in a position where they need more money. So you end up having 80% of people who take out payday loans who are from a two-week loan are trapped in a cycle of debt for 10 months over and over and over again. That's the average. Many people are trapped for, for years. But that's the business model. It's not an accident. It's not a fluke of the customer here. You know, uh, documents from internal business decisions and business meetings have been revealed in, in lawsuits from payday lenders that show, you know, there's one for uh, one of the major payday lenders where an internal company document explaining the business to new staffers had a triangle logo that said the life of a, bit of a payday loan, and it showed a person taking out the loan, a person using the funds of the loan for whatever expense they needed, a person having their loan come due and not having the funding, and then returning to the top by taking out a loan. And it's telling that the industry's business model did not include the person getting out from underneath their debt. Interesting. In fact, the business model is hoping that the debt is is beyond their reach, so they have to get more in debt. And um, Well, and so- just to show you how lucrative it is, payday lenders, you know, they pay – uh, companies to find them customers on the internet. You search payday lending and you get all kinds of ads on the internet, right? So they actually pay more to acquire somebody as a customer, typically, than they will than they end up loaning that customer in their first loan because they know that the payoff is not in the first loan. It's that they're going to be trapped in a cycle of debt for months wow. to come. That's where the money is. And if uh, folks have any uh, doubt as to whom payday lenders prey upon, uh, look around your neighborhood and you can get a sense, uh, depending on what your neighborhood is like, as to whether or not they're preying upon people who are um, uh, have any type of wealth or access to money uh, or people who are living paycheck to paycheck or barely getting by on that. And frankly, I mean, look, we've seen the studies where you have uh, Americans who, um, in the event of an emergency, wouldn't have access to $2,000 cash. Right. You can just imagine, um, uh, through the, the, the spectrum of financial uh, situations, that you, uh, I don't know, you got to, you, you, your car breaks down or you, uh, your kid needs um, uh, something from school, and then suddenly you're short at the end of the month. So with these practices in mind, tell us about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, what it started to do to, at the very least, provide some protections for the, I guess, the prey of this predatory lending. Right. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which many people have no idea what it is, I think everybody needs to Google it and get to know it because Trump is trying to destroy it. You know, it's the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama to have a government entity that is independent of Congress, independent of the White House, uh, and is therefore able to stand up to Wall Street, big banks, corporations, and defend the rights of consumers. It's only been around for about six years, but it's already returned $12 billion to everyday Americans who were screwed over by big banks, credit card companies, debt collectors, payday lenders, you name it. So it's already putting billions of dollars back in the pockets of tens of millions of Americans. Um, and that's why the big banks, the debt collectors, the payday lenders, the credit card companies all want it destroyed and why Republicans are working to do so. So a couple of years ago, uh, during the Obama years, the CFPB, the Consumer Bureau, was working to regulate the payday lending industry. Now, the CFPB doesn't have the authority to put a cap on the interest rate that payday lenders can charge, but what they were seeking to do was to limit the number of loans that a payday lender can 
offer a customer in a calendar year, and also to require that prior to giving the customer a loan, that they check on the person's ability to repay, and that the ability to repay could not simply be that they have a checking account and a job, that they actually had to do their due diligence to make sure that they could afford to pay off the loan in the terms of the loan without it having a seriously detrimental impact on that person's financial situation. So these are the rules that they pursued in the Obama administration. And the rulemaking process in general, it takes a long time. It takes a couple years for something to work its way through. And uh, before Trump was elected, the CFPB, which is led by Richard Cordry, uh, was getting ready to finalize these new rules on payday lenders, which would make it a lot easier for uh, working families that uh, are trapped by these products. And to the Trump administration, where the rule is not yet finalized, but the administration and Republicans in Congress are doing absolutely everything they can do to either weaken the CFPB, to strip its authority, to render it obsolete, to completely eliminate it, you name it. They are, you know, they are trying to sue it out of existence. They are doing everything in their power to stop and destroy this entity because they know most people have never heard of it. But when people do hear about it, they support it 100%. Carl, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about why it is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has, what structurally allows it to have such independence. And I guess, uh, conversely, why is it so difficult for Republicans uh, to destroy it? Because it seems clear to me that in launching their attacks against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Uh, They don't want to completely wipe it out. They just want to basically um, strip it of its ability to function as it's been functioning. This is an agency that people call one of the best agencies in government because of its independent nature. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're talking to Carl Frisch about the Republicans' attacks on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau on behalf of payday lenders. We'll be right back after this. Folks, the Ring of Fire is sponsored by JustCoffee.coop. That's JustCoffee.coop. If you like fair trade, delicious coffee, tea, or chocolate, head over to JustCoffee.coop. Use the coupon code MAJORITY and get 10% off. There's free shipping. You have no reason not to get this great coffee. It's a great outfit in Madison, Wisconsin, which supported the protest there. JustCoffee.coop. We're back on Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Right now I'm talking with the executive director of Allied Progress, Carl Frisch, about the predatory nature of payday lenders. So, Carl, when we broke, you had basically given us a brief history of of both the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and also the dynamic that occurs with payday lenders. And all I can think about in my head is that diagram you described that was found in discovery over the course of lawsuits against these payday lenders of a triangle where this is the business model. The uh, lender starts at the top of the triangle, borrows the money, 
goes down to the corner where they're trying to, they can't repay the, or they, they expend the money, they get the loan, they go back to the other corner where they can't pay it back, and then they shoot back up to the top where they borrow more money, and so on and so on. Right. And presumably during that time, they're paying money to the lender, but the interest rates are such that they're not really knocking off the principal. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you said, is doesn't have the ability to cap the loan amount, but it can cap the number of loans that you give to an individual so that people aren't trapped in that cycle. Is that right? Right. So what it sought to do was not only limit the number of loans that somebody can take out, which in essence, by the way, um, would force the payday lending industry to only give out loans to people can af- who could afford them because you know, they like again, they make their money off of keeping consumers trapped in taking out these two week loans over and over and over and over again. So, if the average customer is taking out 10 loans and they are then capped to only give them four loans over the course of a year, that's going to force uh, the payday lenders to reconsider their business model. At the same time, they said not only can you only give them X number of loans, but you must check to make sure they have the ability to repay, just like credit card companies do, just like banks do, uh, just like mortgage lenders, just like you know car loan uh, folks do. You must check that they have the ability to repay without compromising their financial security. And that is why payday lenders are up in arms. But it's that kind of tough rulemaking and tough decision-making that has been the hallmark of the CFPB since it was started. And that's why People are, you know, Republicans, conservatives, Wall Street financial institutions are pulling out all the stops to destroy it while they can. What is it that makes the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau more independent than, say, I don't know, the EPA or the FDA? Take a look at, like, the SEC, for example. A lot of people know what the SEC is because it, you know, is supposedly going to be Wall Street's top cop, right? But what do we know about Wall Street's top cop? Yeah, they do enforcement sometimes, but more often than not, all we hear is that a multi-quadrillion dollar business has settled a giant scandal for $100 million, which is chump change to them. It's the price of doing business. The reason that this ends up happening and why there's really no teeth over there, uh, certainly no teeth that are being used, is because it's basically a commission model where you've got a certain number of people that run the bureau who are appointed by Republicans and a certain number that are appointed by Democrats, which leads to stalemates so that very rarely does anything ever get done. A lot of these commissions in Washington that the president gets to make appointments to are evenly divided by party and then led by uh, somebody who serves a fixed appointment. But oftentimes it's just that commission. So you have these agencies that are supposed to regulate and they actually don't get much done because they're evenly split. And so to combat that, the CFPB is kind of like the FBI in that regard. They have a director who's appointed by the president, but serves a five-year term so that it's not tied to the president's term. It's independent of the president in that regard. The president can fire the CFPB's director for cause if they've done something uh, objectionable, but they can't just fire them for no reason. They can't pull a a Trump on reality television on the person. And that gives the leadership of the CFPB a certain amount of independence from the executive branch. And it's one of the reasons that folks are going after them. The CFPB is being sued over that. Trump's people have taken the side of big corporations saying that 
Therefore, the CFPB has way too much power because they have a person that Trump can't just fire. Well, you know, there are a lot of people in government that Trump can't just fire, so this is not unique. The other way that it's uniquely independent, well, not really uniquely, but one of the things that makes it uh, independent is that it is not funded by taxpayers and it's not funded through congressional appropriations. So Congress can't screw with its funding whenever they don't like what it's doing. You know, they can't take money from Wall Street one day and then push the CFPB to do something because they're going to strip the funding the next. Uh, How is it the funded? The CFPB is funded by the Federal Reserve's profits. So um, it doesn't cost taxpayers a dime to run the CFPB. In fact, the CFPB returns billions of dollars to the taxpayers every year uh, and doesn't have to worry about congressional uh, obstacles, people who are bought off by Wall Street who then try and use uh, their levers of power in Congress to manipulate the CFPB when it's trying to do enforcement actions. So, uh, I mean, that explains why Republicans are so hell-bent on uh, getting rid of this agency. Let me ask you this. We just have about uh, a little bit less than two minutes left. So mm-hmm. what what can we anticipate Republicans doing to rein in to exercise some control over this uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And we should say, you know, when it comes to payday lenders, it's not just Republicans that are supportive of this. Oh, I mean, yeah, we've no. got people, uh, <laughs> Debbie I mean, Wasserman Schultz, more, more famously. Republicans because a lot of people have spoken out and pushed Democrats to do the right thing when it comes to payday lenders. But it's also not just about payday lenders. We're talking about every uh, bottom-feeding financial product in the, indus- in, you know, in right. the financial industry. So... People need to watch because they are trying everything. The first big step is coming, we believe, on Thursday that the House of Representatives will be debating the so-called Financial Choice Act, which is really the wrong Choice Act because it's a giant Wall Street giveaway. And one of the things it does is it, it removes basically all of the CFPB's authority to defend consumers. Um, and that's going to have a debate on Thursday and probably a vote on Friday. People can go to wrongchoiceact.org if they want to take action and contact their legislators. Every member of the House needs to be contacted about this, because there's one thing we know is that while we have a lot of Democrats on our side, uh, you know, there are some Republicans who will do the right thing if they're pressed, and there are a lot of Democrats who will do the wrong thing if they're not pressed. Yeah, this is very important. Uh, and anytime going forward, contact your representative. Tell them to protect the independence and the power of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Like I say, um, you talk to anybody who's been involved in government for any period of time, there is almost complete unanimity, right. at least by people who are looking to protect consumers, that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is uh, one of the best I guess, agencies that we've had in our government. And why we would want to weaken that makes no sense. If anything, we should be trying to make it stronger. Indeed. Carl Frisch, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Carl Frisch is the executive director of Allied Progress. You can learn more about their campaign against the payday lending industry at alliedprogress.org. When we come back, Heather Digby-Parton will be back to help me run down more news of the week. And if you missed any part of this program, go to rofpodcast.com to sign up for our free one-hour podcast. And if you sign up for the full show and become a member, you'll get the full show without commercials, plus a free hardcover copy of Mike Papantonio's book, Law and Disorder. Your support is what helps keep Ring of Fire Radio on the air. I'm Sam Cedar, and you're listening to Ring of Fire Radio.